0: This is a talk by Joel titled, Transforming Emotions 5, Ignorance, recorded October 2009 at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington.
1: So, this morning we're going to try to transform uh, ignorance or bewilderment into the wisdom energy of dynamic space sometimes called the ultimate sphere, uh, all these synonyms for enlightenment itself. So while these other afflicted emotions transform into various wisdom energies that keep morphing into each other, ignorance transforms into the ground of them all. Enlightenment, gnosis, realization. So, in spiritual terms, there are two meanings of ignorance and we don't want to be confused by them. First there is the fundamental ignorance and this is our literally ignoring the primordial awareness, consciousness itself, that is the non-dual nature of ultimate reality that underlies all this phenomenon, out of which all this phenomenon arises into which it returns that is indestructible, unborn, undying, uncreated, all those terms that you run across in the great traditions describing ultimate reality. And so people like Shankara or Nargajuna will talk about ignorance as the fundamental spiritual problem. But then there is what we might call mental ignorance, or bewilderment is a term that I like a lot, that designates a particular state we can fall into. It's not referring to that ultimate reality. And it's a state that will be characterized by apathy, indifference, a lack of motivation, confusion, unknowing, doubt, all those kinds of murky feelings. You know, I said in English we usually don't think of these so much as emotions, but it's that tending towards despair, Despair in the sense you don't know what to do, you don't know where to turn, where you're at a loss. So anything in that realm we can characterize as mental ignorance or bewilderment. And, yeah, go ahead.
0: It can be in making a decision or-
1: yes, and mental ignorance can be, you know, fairly shallow or can get very deep. But yeah, if you're having a little trouble deciding one way or another and making up your mind and all that, you're starting to get a little mental ignorance there, a little bewilderment. You don't know what to do. And this afflicted emotion points to the ground of all the other afflicted emotions. So when we talk about transforming ignorance or bewilderment, that's what we're talking about transforming, the state of stupor, unknowing, apathy, not knowing what to do, things like that. Now, when the state reaches its extreme, that's what I call kenosis. That's where the mind can't even consider various options and possibilities. It's where there's no preference to go one way or another because there's no reason to go one way or another. So there's no aversion, there's no desire, and there's no real thought arising. There's no organized thought anyway, maybe random thoughts. It's like the whole conditioning, the whole story of I comes to a grinding halt. And then we reach a state of kenosis, where there's just nothing happening because you literally can't think of anything. So, paradoxically, mental ignorance, bewilderment, doesn't manifest until fundamental ignorance starts to break down. And here's what I mean by that. Someone who is really steeped in fundamental ignorance, who really believes that they are a self in a world of objects, and that happiness can be found from attaining certain worldly goals and acquiring certain worldly things and having success in Ferraris and stuff like that, uh, rarely falls into bewilderment. They know what they want. They know why they want it. They're highly motivated to go get it. Maybe the only problem they have is they're getting the right strategy. and So maybe they can have a little, uh, at times a little confusion about, well, which way should I go? But fundamentally, they're not bewildered by life. Life is very clear to them. I'm sure there have been times in your lives when you've experienced this. When I was first starting out in Hollywood anyway, I wasn't bewildered or had no mental ignorance. Uh, I knew where I was going. I was enjoying it. I was getting there. And you had said to me, oh, I'm going on this retreat with this guy, Joel. And I said, oh, come on. You've got to spend 10 days there contemplating your navel. Grow up. This is the real world out here. Get on with your career, your (coughs) job, or whatever. So, people who are steeped in that kind of ignorance, there's really not much you can do for them. I mean, they have to wait until they get to a place where they start to question that. Things can start to happen. One of them is, maybe your failures start to outnumber your successes. So, no matter how much you try, you keep running into failures, failures, and whatnot. Or maybe you're very successful, but the happiness you thought you were going to get out of this is eluding you. And then you start to doubt, what are you doing? And you might try a different strategy and and adjust your goals and so forth. But if the happiness keeps eluding you, you begin to wonder if really there is a strategy at all to get happiness. Is it possible? So when these impasses build up, when you run into them, then you start to question what's going on, then... Your mental ignorance starts to surface, your bewilderment about life, about what to do, and it means your fundamental ignorance is breaking down. Your supposed grip on reality, the way you construed it, is weakening. So there's this inverse ratio here. Bewilderment then if it gets severe enough, and this is a major point, it usually has to be really severe, ultimately transforms into this wisdom of dynamic space. And here's what Longchampo says about it. The arising of unknowing is ignorance. By recognizing it, it arises as natural clarity with no concepts. It is the ultimate sphere, primordial wisdom. When it is recognized, the poisons arise as the power or play of the five primordial wisdoms. So, let me go over this again. The arising of unknowing is ignorance. So he's talking about now mental ignorance. So we we don't know. We don't know anymore what to do. We don't know how to proceed. We don't know how to go forward. By recognizing it, it arises as natural clarity with no concepts. In other words, we get to the point where literally the mind cannot think up any more plans, any strategies, any tactics. It is the ultimate sphere, primordial wisdom, this clarity with no concepts. When it is recognized, and this is very important, you have to recognize what's going on here. Otherwise, it's just kind of a blank. It's just a a mind with no thoughts in it, no desires, no aversions in it. It has to be, oh, recognized. The poisons, the afflicted emotions, arise as the power or play of the five primordial wisdoms. This is what I was talking about before, that now... Desire arises, oh, immediately it's seen as, oh, this is the energy of love and compassion. You don't necessarily put the words on it. You don't even necessarily know the words to it. But it doesn't feel like grasping personal desire. Anger arises, tremendous clarity. So, there's no more transforming to be done because you see the ground, the true nature of the ground, you see the true nature of all the phenomena coming out of the ground. And they're all manifestations of the divine. All mystical traditions recognize this mental ignorance, this bewilderment, the state of kenosis as the gateway to enlightenment. This is why Rumi, the great Sufi poet, writes, Sell your cleverness and buy bewilderment, Cleverness is opinion, bewilderment, vision. Cleverness is what you think you know. Bewilderment is direct seeing, in bewilderment. When there is no more thinking, you can directly see. Here is the great Christian mystic, Dionysius the Aropagite. Thus thine ignorance is not a defect, but thy highest perfection. And thine inactivity... The highest work. And so in this work thou must bring all thy works to naught and all thy powers to silence if thou wilt in truth experience this birth within thyself. So he's talking again about mental ignorance. And here's the great uh, Hindu Lali Shwari. She says, There all words and thoughts become quiet. In that state, there is no knowledge, no meditation, no Shiva or Shakti. All that remains is that, with a capital T. Oh Lali, you are that. Attain that. And we get some idea of this, actually, in our everyday lives, and I'm sure some of you have experienced this. If you're working on a problem, particularly something creative... And often you get your best breakthroughs when you arrive at some impasse. You're trying to work it out, trying to work it out, and you can't get the answer. And eventually the mind gets exhausted, and in that state of exhaustion, an answer comes. A very famous example, in the early days when they were trying to develop quantum mechanics, they were running into all these anomalies and paradoxes in their experiments. And they didn't have a theory that would explain how all this made sense. And they were tearing their hair out, a group of young physicists in Europe. And Werner Heisenberg was one of them. He got to the point, he was just going crazy. I mean, his mind was just tied in knots. And and he also was suffering from a little hay fever. So he said, I'm out of here. I can't take this anymore. And he went off to a little island in the Baltic Sea to get away from the pollen and stuff. And and just relax, get away from all this pressure. And it was at that point that he got the first breakthrough for quantum mechanics. He saw a mathematical way of viewing it. It came to him like that as a breakthrough. After his mind had been exhausted, after he could no longer think about it, because the solution could not be arrived at in thinking the old way. He had to stop thinking the old way. And that required the exhaustion of the old ways of thought. So it's a parallel at the relative level of what happens with enlightenment. The difference here is that he had one set of concepts, one view of the world, and he let go of that and he got another one. In kenosis and in enlightenment, You let go of all your views of the world and you don't get another one. And so in a certain sense you might say you never actually transform the ignorance, the unknowing. That remains. Absolute ignorance, absolute unknowing is a quality of enlightenment. Absolute relative ignorance and absolute relative unknowing. The way you transform mental ignorance into enlightenment is you're struggling with a problem, struggling with a problem, and we're trying to to think it out, and you're feeling this confusion and this bewilderment, and you're trying to think your way to clarity, and if you stop trying to think your way into clarity and look directly into the confusion, look directly into the bewilderment, and that looking and seeing is what transforms it. Here's what Lady Soigel says. Know that ignorance and stupidity are awareness of dynamic space. There is no other way to hold fast to the path than through ignorance and a dense understanding. Look into ignorance, and there is dynamic visionary panorama. Varakona, primordial Buddha of emptiness. So it's the same principle as the other ones. It's looking right into it. In this case, there's this business of stop trying to think your way out. Let go of all those thoughts. It's totally counterintuitive than what we would normally try to do. To do this practice, of course, you first have to get to the stake somehow. And that is extremely difficult. That's why this is going to be the hardest practice of the whole retreat, and uh, I'd be very surprised if anybody has any success. I'll be very pleased, but I'll also be very surprised. So you should all lower your expectations. (laughs) There there are techniques in the traditions that are designed to bring you to this state. One of them is working with Zen koans. Has anybody here not heard about Zen koans or doesn't know what a Zen koan is? Well, they're these funny little puzzles. What is the sound of one hand clapping? that don't really have a rational solution. And the Zen master gives that to a student and tells the student to go off and ponder on it, work on it, and come up with an answer. And the student's mind starts cranking away just like yours and mine would, trying to figure out an answer. And the mind is very clever and comes up with symbolic answers and answers that relate back to the tradition and answers that draw correlations between this and that. And the student comes back and tells the brilliant answer and the master whacks them on the head, sends him back, sends them back. And the whole idea here is to exhaust that mind that's trying to figure it out. And finally, the student gets to the point where the mind is exhausted. And here's what Zen Master Huang Po says about that stage of the practice. Like a man hanging over a precipice, he is completely at a loss what to do next. Except for occasional feelings of uneasiness and despair, it is like death itself all of a sudden he finds his mind and body wiped out of existence together with his koan. This is what is known as letting go of your hold. So there's an example of a practice designed to bring us to this extreme state of bewilderment. You can also get there by contemplating various kinds of what we would in modern terms call deconstructionist philosophies. Plato's Paramenides is a work that will do that. Plato's other work was to build this whole theory of how forms, these archetypal forms, determine what happens at the relative level of existence and so forth. So if you're studying Plato, you go through all that and then you get to this one dialogue, the Paramenides, and he unravels it. He shows that this is impossible. Not only this is impossible, but its opposite is impossible. There's nowhere to go. Narga Juna's philosophy, he's a a great Buddhist philosopher who does the same thing. He shows you whatever you think is wrong. If you think that's wrong, that's wrong too. There's nowhere to take a stand. So people who have that kind of disposition, that kind of temperament, that kind of mind can work with that and they can get there. So there are techniques designed to do this. But for most people what happens is the path and or your life bring you to this stage. I firmly believe in my case that the spiritual path at least speeded up this process. The spiritual path is designed to get you to start looking at things and get you to start doing things and trying things, things that you don't normally do in your conditioned, deluded state, just rolling along mindlessly out of habitual tendencies. And so you start breaking that down. And it finally brings you to a place where there's nothing more to do. The path is self-destructed and you can't go back. And so there you are. You're stuck. And that's what it's all been about to begin with. Okay, so what can we do here? And what I suggest for the purposes of our practice here is that you... Pick something in your life that has been a problem, maybe all your life, but at least not just like a problem of whether you should buy a house or not, but some issue that you have not been able to resolve and that is what I call a personal Cohen. And bring that to mind as we're practicing. And instead of doing what you've probably been doing all along, once again trying to figure it out, trying to get to the bottom of it, trying to resolve it, don't try to resolve it. Stop trying to figure it out. Stop trying to get to the bottom of it. Stop trying to resolve it. Stop trying to be done with it. And look at the bewildered, confused quality about it. That very quality that makes it seem something's wrong here. Look directly at that. Try to be directly with that without trying to change it or manipulate it or do anything to it. And see what happens. Okay, so the precept that would go with this practice is self discipline. It's again not to run away, not to indulge in escapist entertainment, in this case, your thoughts. People who get to this kind of state. They want to think their way out of it. They want to fantasize their way out of it. Some way they want to get out of it. Usually it's not very pleasant. So the precept is, no, let's stay with this. Let's really look into it. So let's try this. I'm going to guide you through the first one. We'll uh, take a, a little pee meditation, and then, yes, we'll do some more. Yes?
0: So is it better for us to find a, a life cone that we've been struggling with our uh, whole life,
1: more important than life, but that's a good indication. But the deeper, the more important it is to you. It's something that's eating away at your gut. Okay? Okay, here we go. <clears throat> begin with concentration, trying to stabilize attention by focusing on your breath or other meditation objects. attention to expand into the field of bodily sensations. attention to expand into the auditory field becoming aware of sounds arising and passing tastes or smells present themselves become aware of them attention to expand into the visual field, becoming aware of sights and visual phenomena. And now allow attention to expand to incorporate the mental field, thoughts, memories, images, so they arise and pass. attention to diffuse evenly to the total field of consciousness awareness allowing all phenomena to arise and pass without any grasping or pushing away If you detect any effort to hold attention still release it and relax into the vast boundless sky of awareness. Now close your eyes and call to mind as vividly as possible some issue or problem that you've grappled with deeply in your life and still haven't been able to resolve. Keep it in mind until you feel a strong sense of bewilderment or helplessness in the face of this issue or problem. Now surrender all efforts to solve the problem and focus your attention on the feeling of that bewilderment, the pure naked feeling. about the problem or issue any judgment such as this is terrible, I should be able to figure this out, why can't I solve it allow them all to self liberate and just stay with that feeling of being unable to do anything If it feels knotted or constricted in some particular part of the body, release it and let it suffuse the entire body-mind Totally surrendered to this bewilderment. Allow the feeling of bewilderment to dissolve back into spacious awareness from which it came. Open your eyes and relax into undistracted spacious awareness.
0: If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program.
1: What was your experience? Was anybody able to get a little bewilderment going? This is really the toughest one. Surprising, I told you, this is quite the contrary. I'd be extremely surprised if this quote worked or not. But I'll talk about it a little bit about how this might be useful for you at other times. But anyway, I do want to get a little more feedback. Louis, you are gonna say something?
0: I was just gonna say I got absolutely nothing. And I was just wondering if this is just something that when I'm not thinking about it and I am just regular pulse school like it's
1: just gonna come out of the blue, just so it could. It definitely could, but it's interesting when you said you got absolutely nothing. I mean, was your mind absolutely blank? Oh no! Oh no, no! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> no, it's just you know, just resting in spacious awareness and just observing drama, phenomena
0: yeah.
1: Well, that is uh, it, one of the problems with this because it you know you get into that nice spacious awareness and. You know, it's like, yeah, well, you know, man. Unresolved <laughs> issues, who cares?
0: <laughs> Jim? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that they're all, they're all really great processes. I feel like I'm uh, looking at myself uh, more as a friend with these uh, problems than ever before. Mm. So, you know,
1: so they are. really there to help. Beautiful. Because if we look at them through spiritual eyes, they are our teachers. To have gratitude for and revered really. I mean, that really takes a real shift in our perspective, but it is certainly possible. And then even though they are problems and issues and emotions that have the afflicted quality about them, our perspective on them shifts. And it's quite interesting when that happens. We start to look forward to the experiences rather than you know, going through life saying, I don't want to experience that, I don't want to experience that. Bring it on, yeah. Rich. Yeah, go ahead.
0: This, um, beginning with, when you first talked about the three things, I forget which one the animal is that's indifference.
1: A pig is the indifference. Pig? Yeah. Okay, anyway. <laughs> um, there's the bewilderment the, the, the that I have. Since you started talking about
0: that, is about some kind of sluggish um, refusal to participate in this whole business, and um, that is really cool. I mean, I need to to see it in in relief. I I don't want to give it like too much power, but there's this real sense of.
1: I'll say is it's not uncommon. You're not some sort of freak. Ambivalence toward the spiritual path is a sign, actually, that you're really getting it. People who aren't at least bit ambivalent about a spiritual path uh, usually means they really don't understand what they're getting into. Otherwise, they'd be very ambivalent about it. (laughs) So it's a a sign of insight. I mean, uh, an intuition about, whoa, what this is really about. And if that doesn't scare you, then something's wrong. Is that helpful? Good. Okay. so to recap, as we said here in the beginning, afflicted emotions fuel the story of I. Uh, It's said in Hollywood that there are only seven basic plots. And then people who pitch stories like to describe them very succinctly in terms of some other successful or well known story. One of the most famous ones was a movie from the early 70s, I guess, or somewhere in there, called Panic in Needle Park. And it wasn't all that great a movie, but the pitch is very famous in Hollywood. There was one line Romeo and Juliet on junk. Bias. <laughs> it. Gotta be a big hit. In any case, if you go further, I think that it really boils down to one plot. Is the hero or heroine going to get what he or she wants? And the corollary, the flip side, are they going to avoid what they want? And of course, there's only one hero or heroine in everybody's story, and that's me. And all the complications of our deluded life really flow from this and it can get extremely complicated just like movies can get extremely complicated and there can be variations and variations on the variations and different kinds of plots can mesh together particularly you know a story that goes on uh, not just two or three hours on the big screen but goes on 40 50 60 70 years you know the longest running soap opera in history And then the trouble with this is, though, it's it's amazing because it's so prevalent, and yet, in the nature of things, it's doomed to fail. Fail in the long run. You may get some temporary thrills and happiness, you know, because you, for a while, get what you think you want, and you may put off the inevitable, avoid major sickness or something in your life. But ultimately, you know, sickness, old age, and death, one of them is going to get you. In fact, you're lucky if you experience old age, because the only way you avoid that is to die young. So it's bound to, in the long run, cause us suffering. However, if we can learn to liberate emotions from this story, from the grip of this story, and doing that by recognizing it's a created story, the mind creates it. It doesn't have to be there. And by just simply allowing all the little impermanent thoughts that make up the story, just to allow them to self-liberate without forming these absorbing, compelling chains that suck us into the story, then even if the stories go on, they don't sweep us up in them. And they don't sweep us up in them, and then the afflicted emotions cease to be afflicted. The affliction comes from the fact that the Emotion is being experienced in the context of the story. And then the emotion itself transforms. And as we talked about, it's not really the best word. Uh, it actually, in a certain sense, transcends, or we see that it it is transcendent of that condition of affliction. That is its natural quality, is some kind of wisdom energy. And if we can do that, then we can start to bring into our lives selfless love and compassion, cultivate skillful means, and ultimately attain enlightenment itself. So there is an alternative way of living from this deluded life, and a great part of it depends on this working with emotions. Because a lot of people on a spiritual path think they're going to somehow figure it out mentally, in their heads. It's all about thought and so forth. And even people involved in a bhakti path with a lot of devotion and working with a lot of emotions tend to come to view emotions in in very dualistic terms. They're the positive emotions of love and devotion and longing and all that and then they're the negative emotions and they tend to end up in a battle with their emotions. They're going to get rid of all the negative emotions and they're just going to be left with these, quote, positive emotions. Uh, So, to, to have some sense of this wisdom is... Very important on a spiritual path. And so even if you haven't been all that successful in this retreat, at least maybe you've gotten a little bit of a glimmer of uh, how this can be done and a little taste maybe experientially, and it'll hopefully be useful for you in the future. But I also want to illustrate how this works, because a picture is better than a thousand words and a story is probably better than a thousand lectures. I want to illustrate it with a parable. It's a parable that I call the tale of two workers. The spiritual worker and the worldly worker. And we'll chase them through the same situation at work. These are just ordinary people at ordinary jobs. So if you're a worldly worker and there you are at work, you want to get ahead. That's what you want. That's part of the story of I. And you want all the goodies to come with success and promotion and raises and so forth. So, you look around for some way you can announce yourself. You can show off your brilliance and what an ambitious good worker you are and so forth. And you spot some way to improve customer service. Not because you particularly care about the customers, but because this is a good idea and it's going to save the company money and it'll bring in more customers and, you know, whatever. So, You're acting out of self-centered desire here to begin with. And you go and you tell your boss your great idea. And he says, Joel, that's brilliant. That is fantastic. You're really terrific. I'm so glad I hired you. And you start swelling with pride, afflicted pride. And the eye is just magnified in that. And in your mind, you're imagining all the things you're going to get and the rewards they are going to be showered on you. And your boss goes off to see the president of the company and he tells him this idea. And the president thinks it's a bang-up idea. Just sensational. The trouble is, your boss tells the president that it's his idea. <laughs> and the president says, you know, that's a fabulous idea. I'm going to make you vice president. And you hear about this, and you are furious. I mean, you feel betrayed, and the afflicted anger is just—what this happened to you? Did you tell my story. <laughs> I should have said in the beginning, based on a true story. <laughs> so there you are, burning with afflicted anger. And then you notice, yes, your boss gets the raise, gets the promotion, and you see him around. Now he's he's driving that Ferrari, you know, he's going out to expensive lunches, and he's wearing nice suits and so forth. And now you're burning with envy, afflicted envy. I mean, I should have had that lifestyle. What's he doing with it? And so then you go to the president to complain. You say, this isn't fair, this was my idea, you promoted the wrong guy, I deserved all that, this is terrible and so forth, and the president looks at you and he says, you've got a rotten attitude, you're fired. You're bewildered, you're just stunned, you're in shock. You don't know what to do. You stagger home and you tell your wife what's happened and she looks at you and says, what a loser. And she packs up and leaves the house and there you sink into depression afflicted, real depression not dark night of the soul real depression and despair that's the fate of the worldly worker (laughs) now let's tell the story of the spiritual worker there you are, you're a spiritual worker and you're on the job And you're noticing these customers that you deal with all the time. And you see a way to improve their experience here in their lives. Just make them a little bit happy. This isn't a a world-saving thing, but it's a little thing that will make everybody a little happy. It will be good for the whole. The company will make a little extra money. It will be more efficient and all that. And so you go tell your boss. And your boss says, that's a bang-up idea. That is fantastic. You are brilliant. But instead of swelling with pride, you just feel grateful that you've been able to be of some service to humanity in some little way, but you're very grateful. And then your boss goes to see the president, and he tells the president this great idea. The president thinks it's brilliant, but of course the same thing happens. The boss tells the president that it's his idea. So you hear about this, and instead of experiencing afflicted anger, which some people might (laughs) which people in the story this was based on probably did (laughs) instead of experiencing afflicted anger suddenly you're in a state of mirror like wisdom clarity you never knew this about your boss before no this poor son of a bitch he doesn't even know the difference between right and wrong never knew what a miserable person he was. And so you end up buying him a spiritual book for Christmas. (laughs) My book, by the way. (laughs) So then you see him, uh, he's got the new lifestyle, he's got the Ferrari, the clothes and all that. That you don't notice too much, but you notice he's got a lot more power now. He can get things done, just like that. He can snap his fingers, because he's vice president now, not just, you know, some office manager or something. And so you think, ah, all accomplishing wisdom comes to the fore. And you think, I can feed him more ideas to improve everybody's life, and he can get them done. So you start telling, oh, here's a way you can improve uh, the, the workplace for your own workers, and they'll be happier, and they'll be more productive, and all that. And he starts implementing all your ideas. He's taking credit for them all, but they're getting done. The place is getting to be a much more enjoyable place to work. So your all-accomplishing wisdom is having this effect in the world. So then you come home, and you tell your wife what's happened. Now, this is one of these things where there are three different endings. You notice nowadays... (laughs) No, I've noticed this. If you check out a movie from blockbusters or something, sometimes they have alternate endings. Well, this has three alternate endings. So, the first ending is, oh, she's so inspired by your example. She resolves to cultivate more love and compassion in her life, and your relationship grows richer and uh, stronger together. And she buys your book. And she buys my book, yes she does, of course. (laughs) 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 The second one, though, she responds quite a bit like the uh, worldly worker's wife. She says, what a loser you are. She packs up and she moves out of the house. And... Instead of being uh, stunned and bewildered or sinking into despair, you marvel at the cosmic wisdom, which is now providing you with so much more opportunity for spiritual practice. <laughs> or the third version is: you tell her, and she looks at you, and she says, "You idiot!" And she smacks you in the face, and you wake up just like a dense. <laughs> In any case, of course, obviously, uh, as with any parable, life doesn't uh, unfold quite so cleanly. And there are lots of ups and downs and two steps forward, one step back, and all that sort of stuff. But it does make the point that just by this simple, beginning with a simple anyway, observation of what causes the affliction of the emotion and being able to liberate it from that self-centered story, how it really can affect your life. The same situation, you don't have to you know, go to India and don robes, you don't have to quit your job as a car salesman and go join the Peace Corps or something like that. Wherever you are, you can make use of the circumstances that you find yourself in. You also might notice something about this, since it all comes from just observing how the story of I sucks these emotions in to feed the story, and just by liberating the story, the emotion itself reveals its true character, it's very little effort, really. I know this may sound strange to you, you know, in the beginning when you've been trying to practice and stuff, and it seems like a lot of effort, but it's very little effort, and particularly, there's no effort here to have to generate positive emotions. You don't have to go to work and say, "Oh, I've got to love everybody. I've got to love my enemies. I've got to cultivate love and compassion for all these slobs." And you know, no, it happens naturally. And you don't have to go around repressing negative emotions, pretending you don't feel what you really feel, which puts you in conflict with yourself and all sorts of other things. So it's a very natural, spontaneous way to arrive at truth. So keep that in mind in terms of when you get into this practice back in the world, in real situations like at work or with your family or in other social kinds of situations. Okay, so what we're going to do this afternoon is give you a chance to work with whatever emotion might be dominating in your life at this particular period. So, for instance, uh, if you've lost a loved one recently, you may be dealing with grief. If you are going through a divorce, you may be dealing with anger. Anything that is prominent in your life that keeps coming up again and again. It may be some issue from the past. You may have gotten divorced ten years ago and still have a lot of anger coming up about that. Or somebody may have died and have a lot of grief coming up. If that's not the case with you, or if you're just not having a success bringing up any strong emotion here, then you can just practice watching little emotions come up. And they may be even so small they're one of those little three very primitive impulses. You know, a desire to get out of here, a uh, aversion to the sound of the heater, just indifference. You know, whatever comes up. And even those small emotions will have a little charge to them, a little bit of energy to them, that if you uh, let the thought that aroused them self-liberate, you'll get a chance to just be with that energy and to see what it is in its pure form. So any questions about the uh, format for the afternoon? Well, great. Let's get to it.
0: You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing at least once a day until you are thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more teachings and instructions.